uh, one of the pastors around here, typically unpacking the scriptures for all of us when we come into this place every week. Um, as Jason was mentioning the foundations course coming up, just an FYI, if you didn't get that email, make sure you fill out a connect card before you leave this morning. That'll put you into our database so that you get emails like that. Um, so if you'll just fill out one of those cards, you can leave it in your seat or drop it off at the back table on your way out the door, and, and we'll make sure that you get connected to that kind of information. And you can even express interest in that course by writing Foundations course on a Connect card even and leave that on the back table as well if that's easier than trying to sign up online, and we'll make sure that you get put into that database. If you're joining us for the first time this morning, we're Recently, uh, we launched a new sermon series in the book of Acts. It's one of the most action-packed books in all of the Bible, as we've clearly seen over the course of just the first few chapters thus far. It's a book that, as I've mentioned before, could really be entitled The Acts of Jesus Christ Through the Apostles and the Church by the Power of the Holy Spirit, that Jesus is the one behind the scenes here. He's the one at work. The book of Acts essentially tells the story of a bunch of ordinary people empowered by the extraordinary Spirit of God turning the world upside down for Jesus' glory. This morning, that story continues as we encounter the second recorded public persecution in this book of the Bible. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to Acts chapter 5. We'll be jumping in starting in verse 12 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can open up to this morning's passage using that Bible. Take that with you as the church's gift to you if you don't own a Bible or the translation that you have is a little difficult maybe to track with. We got a lot of ground to cover this morning, so let me just go ahead and pray for us and we'll get, we'll get to work. God, would you help us this morning? Holy Spirit, would you move in power? Would you open our slumbering eyes to see that which you have for us in your word? Would you open our slumbering ears to hear? Would you awaken our slumbering hearts to receive the beauty of the truth of your word, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit? Holy Spirit, without you, we are hopeless this morning. We are about to see the apostles endure persecution yet again, would you help us to see what in the world persecution might look like in our context and, and what it is to, to rejoice in the midst of those moments and as a broader brushstroke to rejoice in the midst of suffering, in the midst of encountering the things that make this world broken, fallen. God, would you meet us in the midst of our suffering in the midst of our dark nights of the soul for those of us who may be going through some hard things right now jesus would you reveal yourself yet again to be enough to be sufficient such that as we walk out of here even those of us who are walking in great darkness right now in terms of our circumstances that we would shine like stars for the glory of jesus christ god move in these moments to come please we ask it in the name of jesus amen so picking up where we left off last week, we've yet to make it through five full chapters, and already we've seen Satan's two-pronged attack on the church. Persecution from the outside, evidenced by the religious leaders' treatment of Peter and John back in chapter 4, and moral corruption and compromise from the inside, evidenced by Ananias and Sapphira in the early part of chapter 5. We looked at that story last week. There's, there's a significant war being waged here. On one level, there's this question as to who the true leaders over Israel are. Is it the apostles 
Or is it the religious leaders? Who are God's anointed? Whose words should be given significant weight? And as we'll continue to see in this morning's passage, it's the apostles. It's the very ones who are declaring the the glory and supreme worth of Jesus, not the ones who are seeking to suppress the mention of his name. On another level, there's a battle in the spiritual realm going on in the book of Acts between the spirit of God and the devil of hell. The Holy Spirit fills the hearts of men and women and the lame are healed. Souls are, are rescued. Satan fills the hearts of Ananias and Sapphira and the living are struck dead. That try as he may to derail the church, Satan's on the losing end of this battle. We'll see that yet again as we continue in this morning's passage. Picking up in verse 12 of chapter five, it says, now many signs and wonders were regularly being done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. We don't really know how much time has passed since the Ananias and Sapphira episode that we just came out of in the early part of chapter five. We do know that that the church is experiencing some growing pains at this point. There's a continued commitment among the apostles to preach the gospel, to perform miracles in Jesus's name, but there's also a fear among many other professing Christ followers that, that keeps them at arm's length. Perhaps a fear caused by seeing what had happened to Ananias and Sapphira. Like, what if I'm not courageous enough to stand up to the religious leaders like Peter and John? Will that reveal me to be a fraud, a hypocrite perhaps? In the midst of it all, one thing certainly remains true. Jesus continues to build his church. Verse 14, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. That that signs and wonders continue to corroborate the apostles' testimony about Jesus. The Spirit so powerfully at work, both in and through Peter, that those who simply come near him experience healing. Wouldn't that be a cool branch of the church's ministry? A shadow healing ministry? That'd be amazing, right? It's, it's reminiscent of the healing that took place back in Matthew chapter 9 where we're told that behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind Jesus and touched the fringe of his garment for she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. And Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. That there's wonder working power in Jesus, we sing that from time to time around here. If, if I only touch his garment, I'll be made well. Here in Acts chapter five, you see the same wonder working power on display through the apostles. It's Jesus' continued work of ministry from heaven. Same things evidenced in his public ministry, the healing of the sick, the casting out of demons in the gospels. We read about what Jesus did and taught on earth. In the book of Acts, we read about what Jesus did and taught from heaven. And just like the, the opposition and persecution that Jesus himself faced in the gospel accounts, the apostles face opposition and persecution here in the book of Acts. We're told in verse 17, but the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all of the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Notice that it's not ultimately a concern for 
for sound doctrine that motivates the religious leaders to act. It's, it's not a, ultimately a concern that wolves might be on the prowl, seeking to lead the sheep under their care astray. It's jealousy. Going back to, to chapter four, the religious leaders had worked hard to earn their position in the community, yet it's the apostles drawing big crowds now in this moment in Acts chapter five, performing incredible miracles that they're incapable of performing themselves, seeing multitudes of people added to their numbers daily. And so we're told that filled with jealousy, the religious leaders have the apostles arrested and thrown in prison. This is the second time that we see an episode like this already in the early chapters of the book of Acts. And in the same way that, that everything else, as we're going to see, intensifies in this second episode of persecution, so does the release from prison. Chapter 4, the religious leaders come, they put the keys into the, the jail cell and open it up. And the apostles leave. In chapter five, it's an angel of the Lord, which by the way, we talked about this before, the Sadducees didn't believe in angels. God just continues to, to flex as this story of the book of Acts continues to unfold. Continuing in verse 21, it says, now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the Senate and all the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison so they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And some came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people." This is one of those humorous moments, by the way, in the book of Acts. You, you just imagine the look on the religious leaders' faces in this moment when the news comes back that the prison cell's empty. Um, so the, the cell is locked and the guards are there, but Peter and John and the rest of those guys, they, they've kind of gone bye-bye. They've blown away like a dandelion in a breeze. And then, and then some bystander shouts out in that moment, hey, remember when you had those Jesus fanatics handcuffed yesterday outside the temple? Well, now they're inside the temple and they still won't shut up talking about Jesus. And oh yeah, by the way, they're saying that an angel, which you guys don't believe in, right? Let them out of that prison cell. It's almost laughable. How great is the divide between the religious leaders and the people in this moment? So great that the religious leaders are afraid of being stoned to death by this massive crowd. The religious leaders in this moment are, are being shown to be both powerless and fearful while the apostles are being shown as being empowered and emboldened by the Spirit of God. That the advancement of the gospel, we talked about this over and over again in this story, will not be stopped. Verse 27 and when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, the name of Jesus, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. The, the, the high priest is, 
in this moment, he's trying to get his mind around why anyone would defy him along with the, the others who make up this religious Supreme Court known as the Sanhedrin. And the answer for Peter and the rest of the apostles, the gospel. Peter essentially says, I have one obsession and his name is Jesus Christ. And you're attempting to get me to stop talking about him and that's just not gonna happen. How did Peter begin his sermon on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter two? Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. What did Peter say to the lame beggar outside the temple, Acts chapter three? I have no silver, silver or gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. What was the opening line of Peter's sermon at Solomon's porch in Acts chapter three? Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made this man walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant, Jesus. Following his release from his first imprisonment, what did Peter say to the religious leaders in Acts chapter four? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus, there it is again, is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. For Peter, it's not only all about Jesus, it's always about Jesus. And what we see here in chapter five is, is no different. Peter boldly proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's been forever changed by Jesus and he just can't be silent about it. It's a message that never gets old for Peter. The sinless one dying in the place of sinners, having risen from the grave and triumph over those darkened dragons of Satan, sin and death, as James mentioned earlier, exalted to the right hand of the father, both savior and leader, both redeemer and king that what Peter declares here is that Jesus as savior cannot be divorced from Jesus as leader, though many in evangelicalism functionally live as though that's possible. Jesus, I'm, I'm good with you dying for my sins. I'm good with you being my savior, but my leader, it's all the same with you. I would like to be the ruler of my own kingdom if that's okay. And then if you can just show up a few decades from now when I'm on my deathbed and remind me that you've died for my sins, that'd be fantastic. That's not the Jesus that Peter's proclaiming. That to embrace Jesus as savior is to embrace Jesus as king, such that if Jesus isn't your king, then he's likely not your savior. That if Jesus isn't leading you, I think we should ask that question, is Jesus leading my life? If Jesus isn't leading you, it's worth asking the question, have I bought into the lie of easy believism? This idea that I, I prayed a prayer, I walked an aisle years back, and so I'm good to go now. I'm just gonna coast until I die, functioning as my own sovereign until that moment. That the new heart that God gives his people is a heart that embraces Jesus as both savior and king which is not the heart of the religious leaders here in Acts chapter five. We're told in verse 33, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. So, so now they have capital punishment on their minds, which wasn't the case back in chapter four. Again, everything is intensifying in this story. Verse 34, but a Pharisee on the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to, to them, men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Theudas rose up claiming to be somebody and a number of men, about 400 joined him. 
He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. And after him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some, people, uh, some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. Gamaliel, most prominent rabbi of his day, he was Paul's teacher prior to Paul's conversion. If that tells you anything, his viewpoint carried a significant amount of weight in his assessment. We, we've seen movements like this before. This too shall pass. But, but if it doesn't, you don't want to be found on the opposing side of God. Amazingly, though unintended, Gamaliel's use of language reveals the irony of, of all that's taking place here. He talks about these other leaders who rose up only to eventually die along with their following. Meanwhile, on the other side of death, Jesus has been raised up by God himself and is seated at the right hand of the Almighty. He rose up in the most powerful way imaginable. And the religious leaders are already found to be opposing God. And they're already failing to overthrow overthrow the church that Jesus is building even here in this moment. Try as they may, the message of the gospel will not be silenced. You just continue to see it over and over and over again in the book of Acts. And now, perhaps the most mind-boggling part of this entire morning's passage, verse 41, then they left the presence of the council, the apostles did, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day, in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. They, they left the presence of the council, according to most scholars, after receiving the same kind of flogging that Jesus received prior to his crucifixion. Now, that word back in verse 40 can be translated flayed, flogged, scourged, or beaten. Some of them likely marred beyond recognition, rejoicing, <laughs> rejoicing. They were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus, unwavering in their commitment to keep boldly pointing people to Jesus. I don't know about you, but I find that incredibly sobering and encouraging. There's a both and that happens for me there. Sobering in that I don't perceive myself, if I'm honest with you, to have that kind of boldness even now encouraging in that the Spirit is capable of supplying the grace necessary to endure anything for Jesus. Do we believe that? Similar to last week, just a couple of things to consider with a passage like this. For one, going back to chapter 4, we, we saw the church gather together rallying in prayer. According to a lot of people's understanding of Christianity, the expectation will be that the circumstances now must get better, right? That's what God's supposed to do. We were on our knees. We prayed for you to move mightily. Our circumstances should be better in chapter 5 because we prayed in chapter 4. And yet that's not what we see. We see opposition increase, intensify. We see persecution intensify. We see suffering intensify. But we also see the power of God on display intensify. That, that in contrast to the previous experience at Solomon's porch back in chapters three and four, you gotta ask the question, why are these two episodes back to back both placed in the book of Acts? 
they look very similar. Why waste space in the book of Acts? There could have been some better story to infuse, right? Why tell what appears to be the same story twice in a row? And because it appears to be so similar of a story as to what we saw in chapters three and four, it's worth asking the question, what's different here? What's in contrast? And the answer is, on the one hand, as it pertains to opposition and persecution and suffering, notice that it's not just Peter and John this time, but all the apostles. The sheer number of those facing persecution has increased as has the rage and jealousy of the religious leaders. Verse 33, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Back in chapter four, there was no no talk of public execution at that point. And, And though they don't embrace any sort of or enforce any sort of capital punishment at this point, they do inflict greater harm on the apostles. Right Back in chapter four, Peter and John were certainly threatened, but there was no flogging at that point. Here in chapter five, the apostles are scourged. They're beaten before they're released. More jealousy and rage, more people being persecuted, more intensified forms of persecution. And yet the display of God's power and redemption is all the more intensified in the midst of it all. Notice that that first episode back in chapter three involved the healing of a lame beggar. What wasn't there? Exorcisms. Right here in chapter five, we see the healing of those afflicted with unclean spirits. God is not only sovereign over sickness, he's also sovereign over Satan. And so if you feel the enemy coming at you right now, be encouraged to know that God sits enthroned over the devil of hell himself. In addition, as it pertains to miracles, back in chapter four, Peter and John were released from prison by the guards who oversaw that prison. Here in chapter five, it's an angel of the Lord. Back in chapter four, Peter took the lame beggar by the hand and raised him up. Here in chapter five, Peter's shadow is enough to reveal God's power. But wait, there's more. This is like some infomercial for God, right? Back in chapter four, the the geographical impact of the advancement of the gospel was confined predominantly to the city of Jerusalem. Here in chapter five, verse 16, the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem that the gospel's beginning to spread. Remember what Jesus had said back in Acts chapter one, verse eight to the apostles? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. It's happening. And not just geographical expansion, but an increased number of people coming to faith. Verse 14, this blows my mind. If you've read the first four chapters and you've seen the thousands come to know Jesus, It should blow your mind to see the words, and more than ever. That's crazy. What does that mean? Like tens of thousands? And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. That opposition and persecution and suffering intensifies, and Jesus says, you call that flexing? Let me show you flexing. Christian, that's your God. That's your God. He's sovereign over even your suffering. And he he purposes it all for his eternal glory and your eternal joy and good, even if you can't see what he's doing in the midst of it right now. Which brings me to a second point. It's not just that there's a contrast between the intensifying suffering and persecution on the one hand and and God's intensifying display of his power. There's also what a a contrast of what it looks like and what it means to live for yourself versus what it looks like and what it means to live for Jesus. Just look at the disposition of the religious leaders in contrast to the apostles in this morning's passage. The religious leaders are living for their own self-preservation, their own comfort, 
their own power, their own control. And what does it get them? Jealousy and rage. The same time, uh, same things that you and I, if we're honest, oftentimes experience when we try to hang on to our own comfort, our own power, our own control, our own self-preservation. They're miserable in this passage. Meanwhile, the apostles are rejoicing even in the midst of imprisonment and beatings. It's crazy. It's the ones in shackles who are the ones who are truly free in this morning's passage. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3. Remember that story? We walked through that book of the Bible recently where they say, O Nebuchadnezzar, king, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They knew that God was fully able to deliver them, but their faith wasn't contingent upon his rescue from the blazing furnace. Doesn't matter what you do to us. Either way, we get God. May he be glorified through our deliverance or through our death. Either way, we will not bow, which is a drastic contrast to a world filled with professing Christians whose faith is contingent. Jesus, if you, if you give me this or that, I'll follow you. Jesus, if you'll rescue me from this or that, I'll, I'll follow you. Jesus, as, as long as this thing or that thing doesn't come unravel for me, I'll follow you. But if it does come unraveled, expect to see some fist waving. Expect to see some jealousy. Expect to see some rage. Just like the religious leaders in Acts chapter 5. It's not the most powerful man in the world, Nebuchadnezzar, who's truly free. It's the boys standing in the fire and the flame who are the ones who are truly free in Daniel chapter 3. Who have seen the beauty, the, the glory the wonder, the splendor of the one true God. Like you can throw us in the, in the blazing furnace of your wrath, Nebuchadnezzar, but we will not bow. Our God is enough. Whether he delivers us or not, his grace and his presence are sufficient. Or how about the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter one? We went through that book of the Bible recently as a church as well. Paul's writing from a prison cell and he says, uh, Philippians 1, verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Paraphrase, I cannot lose. That's what Paul's saying. No matter how this thing plays out, I'm on the winning side. If I live, that's great, because I have ministry in the name of Jesus to, to accomplish. If I die, I get to be with Jesus in the closest possible union I've ever experienced with him. By the way, this is the same Paul who prior to his conversion, most scholars argue, was likely among the religious leaders here in Acts chapter 5. A student of Gamaliel a jealous, enraged persecutor and insolent opponent of the church, providing on-site approval of Stephen's execution in Acts chapter seven, as we'll see a few weeks from now. You see a very different man in Philippians chapter one. You see a free man. You see a man who's encountered the, the blinding light of the radiant Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, who's tasted something of the freedom of self-forgetfulness, a man who knew something of true freedom from bondage to the idols of comfort and power and control and this clawing after a self-preservation. Hey, only the gospel can do that, right? If, you, if you've experienced the gospel, you know that to be true. 
Paul, a man in Roman shackles, arguably the freest man in the city of Rome as he penned the words of Philippians chapter one. I don't know about you, but I want more of that in my life. You might say, well, nobody's threatened, threatening me with a fiery furnace or prison shackles, so how does this idea of rejoicing in the midst of persecution work in, in my own life? Which is where I think the Sermon on the Mount is really helpful. Jesus says something very similar to what we see in the last couple of verses of this morning's passage in Acts 5. As he stood on the hillside and he preached, Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, Jesus said to the crowd, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Rejoice when persecuted, Jesus says. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. Be glad. What I think is critical there is Jesus says that. He says to rejoice in the midst of persecution after several other blessed are statements. And so I think it's there that we see and understand what it looks like to actually rejoice in the midst of persecution. It's by going to those other blessed are statements. I want to do that very briefly as we close this morning, taking those statements and looking at them through the lens of, of what we say and, and how we live, what we declare with our lips and what we display with our lives. Jesus begins, blessed are the poor in spirit. When it comes to your lips, what you say, consider this. Those outside Christianity desperately want to believe that they can be a good enough person to merit God's love. Tell people that they can't broker a deal with God, that they're spiritually bankrupt, and you might not get a good response, right? For Jesus, it was the Pharisees more than anyone who cried off with his head. When you talk about spiritual bankruptcy before the Lord, you're a fool to most of the world. That's your lips. What about your life? Well, the spiritually impoverished are those who quit trying to manage their reputation, who realize that, that apart from Jesus, they have no reputation, who declare that Jesus is their reputation, who, who has gifted them his perfect righteous record in exchange for their sin record, which he bore upon the cross. Set aside reputation management and the world will consider you a fool. What about blessed are those who mourn? When it comes to your lips, what you say. Mourners, as Jesus defines them, talk about the fallenness of the world, the loss of the garden in Genesis 3. And not only that, they make it personal. They, they talk about their own sin, their own contribution to the fallenness of the world. You talk that way, and there are many in the world who will think you're, you're off your rocker. In fact, religious neatniks, some of them within the walls of the church, will see it as an opportunity to gather ammunition in comparing themselves to you, feeling as though they're better than you your lips? What about your life? When you really grasp at a mind and heart level what we lost in the garden, when you really grasp that the offense that your sin is toward a holy God, a disposition of grieving your sin and the fallenness of the world is inevitable. And, and it's possible that should you actually live with such a disposition, you may be ostracized. You may be labeled a Debbie Downer and pushed to the margins of society, even within the evangelical community. Like you're only allowed to share brokenness in a community group for a few weeks in a row, and then you need to shut up about that stuff, right? Blessed are the meek. When it comes to your lips, what you say, those who speak tenderly, gently, compassionately to others are seen as weak. 
You want to maintain your position at the top. You've got to be a little abrasive and domineering in this world. Even the religious neatniks were harsh, were they not? Look at the way they spoke to and about other people in the gospel accounts. Become tender and compassionate in the way that you speak to others and expect that harsh and domineering people might trample you underfoot on their way to the top. What about your life? Well, the life of the meek person is really easy to ridicule. When you set aside the chase of self-exaltation, that looks foolish to most of the world. After all, the goal is to make a name for yourself, to create a platform for you, whether it be through your job, through social media, through your presence in the community. When humility, gentleness, and forgiveness are the marks of your life, you're a prime target for the domineering religious and irreligious people of the world. What about blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness? When it comes to your lips, what you say the person who, who declares my righteousness is not to be trusted. Again, a fool in the eyes of the world. The world says, trust your own righteousness. Be a good person and God will love you. How do you know you're gonna go to heaven? I'm a decent human being. How many people say that in the world? Saying to, to God and others, my righteousness is corrupt. I need a righteousness, not my own, an alien righteousness that comes from Jesus. That's worthy of ridicule in the eyes of a lot of people. And again, this includes the religious neatniks who trust in their own righteousness, checking all the boxes, doing anything and everything they can to seek to obtain God's acceptance and favor through good works. Worthy of ridicule and persecution is the person who trusts in a righteousness that's not his or her own, the righteousness of Jesus given by grace alone through faith alone. What about your life? Well, according to the world, there are a lot of things worth craving, worth hungering and thirsting after, Jesus and his kingdom and his kingly rule, not so much one of those things for a lot of people. If Jesus is your king, that means that you've declared that you are not seeking to become your own sovereign, that you're laying that down. To set aside building your own kingdom in order to build Jesus's, to set aside being the queen or the king of your own kingdom, to be a rejoicing peasant in his kingdom, bending your knee in glad submission to him, that's folly to many in the world, easy to ridicule. What about blessed are the merciful? When it comes to your lips, what you say, the merciful are those willing to speak to the quote-unquote riffraff of society, <laughs> those that nobody else wants to talk to, be it the impoverished, the sick, the afflicted, the depressed, the vilest of sinners. You engage in conversations with those people, and you're going to get talked about by some, particularly by the holier-than-thous, by those who think that they're better than those people about your life. When you actually associate with the impoverished of society, especially seeking to meet their needs, people will call you gullible, a fool for giving to those who can't or won't help themselves. When you associate with the vilest of sinners, you'll be ostracized. The religious neatniks will call you a drunkard and a glutton, a friend of sinners, just like they did with Jesus. You'll be persecuted with regard to your reputation. What about blessed are the pure in heart? When it comes to your lips, what you say, the cry of most everyone in our culture is, the problem is out there. The world's the problem. Culture, education system, the corrupt politicians. It's not to say that some of those things don't contribute to the problem. But when your cry becomes, I'm the problem, I'm not to be trusted, when that becomes your cry, the world screams folly. Even the religious neatniks who focus not on the heart, but on external reformation will label you a fool for making such an indicting statement about yourself. 
And then when it comes to your life, how you live, we, we live in a world that's all about pretenses. For you to set aside the mask, which we talked about a few weeks ago, and quit playing pretend with God and others, it's crazy. To, to acknowledge your need for heart transformation by God's grace, that's upside down thinking to a world that declares God loves the good guys and hates the bad guys, so just clean up your act. Behavior modification. You'll be persecuted for living a life under the banner of grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. What about blessed are the peacemakers? When it comes to your lips, what you say, in order to, to be a peacemaker, at some point you have to have vocalized in your, your life somewhere along the way, God, I'm at war with you. I'm hostile toward you. I'm your enemy. Most people don't think that way. Most people don't think they're an enemy of God. Maybe apathetic at times. Not only that, to be a peacemaker means you, you have to speak truth in the lives of others who are hostile toward God. We see it in the apostles' encounter with the religious leaders in this morning's very passage. What about your life, how you live? Well, when you've been reconciled to God by the peacemaking blood of Jesus Christ, it changes your worship. You become a person who acknowledges, I was at war with you, God. You should have crushed me, but instead you crushed your son in my place so that I might be at peace with you. I owe you my life. I give you my life. That, that kind of foundation for all of your decision-making is absurd to many in the world. That's crazy outside of Christianity. You'll be ridiculed for living and making all of your decisions based on that belief that the son of God was crushed in your place so that you might be at peace with God. You see how just by taking Jesus' statements leading up to rejoice in the midst of persecution, you, you see how persecution is inevitable for those of us who follow Jesus in some capacity, for those who take his blessed are statements to heart. I love this definition of persecution by John Stott. He says, persecution is simply the clash between two irreconcilable value systems. As a person who, who struggles to get my, my mind around what it means to, to embrace persecution and to rejoice in the midst of it, I find that definition to be incredibly helpful. I don't know about you. Because the value system that Jesus lays out on a hillside in Galilee, it's upside down to everyone who's not a follower of Jesus Christ. And it's the same value system that the apostles declare and display here in the book of Acts that we've seen over the course of several chapters now. It's a value system that's upside down to the irreligious lost, those who think that the reward is for the rich, for the strong, those who hunger and thirst for power, for control, those who trample underfoot others on their way to the top, those whose motto is he who dies with the most toys wins, so build your own kingdom while you can. The value system that Jesus lays out on a hillside in Galilee, the value system that the apostles lay out in the book of Acts is folly to the irreligious lost, and it's upside down thinking to the religious lost too. Those who believe that, that God rewards the good guys and smites the bad guys, those who live their lives based on external reformation, who tediously follow all the do's and don'ts of religiosity in an effort to earn God's love. But those who have seen the supremely valuable Jesus Christ for who he truly is, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, like the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter one, like the apostles in Acts chapter five. Those are the ones who are truly free. And we're talking about something far more expansive even than persecution, the ability to rejoice in the midst of hardship, in the midst of sickness, in the midst of loss, in the midst of death, in the midst of job loss, and on and on and on we could go. 
And so my prayer for us is simply that we would more deeply see and savor Jesus Christ such that as a result of our seeing and savoring him, that we might rejoice no matter what comes our way. Declaring Jesus to be enough, showing those around us who are truly shackled, the religious and irreligious lost, what true freedom and joy really is. In the midst of our dark nights of the soul, shining like stars, declaring Jesus to be enough and completely train wrecking the paradigm of everyone around us.